Blog Talk Radio. September 26th, 19. <laughs> oh, boy. That's not a good way to start out. Uh, back to the future? Or no, wait, that would be back to the way back. History is 2021. <laughs> My goodness gracious. I, I think I have been reminiscing. I'm Tanya Hathaway, and I'm your host with Tanya Talks, where your voice is heard and your stories told on Marty Oakley's PS Radio Network and Stephen Burke's. 89.9 KLRB out of out of Oklahoma, Stewart, Oklahoma, and the surrounding areas. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in tonight. We've got a great show for you. There's been a quick change. Jimmy uh, Lawson is not able to come on. Um, something personal just came up, or just there was some some business came up, and he will be on. Uh, the following Sunday, next Sunday. So, uh, yes, Marty, that is that is her. Um, so, so please uh, just hang in there, and we are going to have him on. He happens to also be um, a best friend of Julius Jones, and so you know we're going to find out why he threw his hat in as mayor, uh, uh, as a mayoral candidate, candidate, and. We're going to have some great insights uh, to his insights. How does that sound? Uh, there's an awful lot of people that feel that Oklahoma needs to change, and I'm one of them. I'm one of them. I, uh, we know that not everything is, is bad, but we also know that not everything is good. And when it comes to the um, the judicial system and the, the bar association there and uh, the oversight committees, and very many things. Unfortunately, it seems to be that there are more problems than not in in Oklahoma. So uh, there are other states that can certainly follow suit. We know Oklahoma is not the only one, and we're certainly sharing other stories with you as well uh, than just Oklahoma. We're sharing stories with you now also coming from Ohio, uh, George Skates. George Skates. I'm going to give you a little update during the break, uh, during the show. So we're going to have a nice 90 minutes together. I would like to say hello to my beautiful mother in New Hampshire. My mom is just absolutely amazing. And yes, I'm biased, but you would be too. Even if she wasn't your mom, if you met her, you'd say, oh, wow. Okay, Tanya, you're right. Ha <laughs> ha. There's a lot of nice people in this world, and it's nice to recognize them, isn't it? So we should all make sure that we say I love you is where they belong and and make those phone calls. Sometimes picking up that phone can make a world of difference to somebody. Uh, This show is also brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed 
and the annual Whistleblower Summit. So we want to thank you, Marcel Reed. And this show is also brought to you by Journeys to Justice Incorporated, a non-for-profit. And if you want to know how you can help against public corruption, when and where it is, please contact Journeys to Justice at Outlook.com. Journeys to Justice at Outlook.com. We have with us tonight Melissa Hurry, who is an ethics expert. Yes, she gets paid uh, to be an ethics ex- expert uh, for the town of Con- for the state of Connecticut, and she is uh, she is going very far uh, with with her work. Um, she's very very interested in the oversight committees in um, you know wrongful wrong, wrongful convictions. Uh, anti-death sentence, as I have, as I am too, uh, especially knowing, especially knowing all the wrongful convictions that are out there. Uh, Melissa has shared with me some tremendous insight on the wrongful convictions. So I would have to say I am much more uh, anti-execution than not. Uh, and so she's going to be on with us, and we're going to talk about Julius Jones and, and his case and, you know, why why was an execution date actually a, a date set for him after there was a recommendation from the Party and Parole Board for, for an accommodation, for a commutation. Um, and there was question marks that one of the – board members had brought up, you know, about his innocence even. And they even go on to say that, you know, we are not here to determine if something is a wrongful conviction or not, but we are here to determine somebody's the, the ability to, uh, uh, to actually be spared from, from death row and, and why should they be spared? Well, goodness um in many cases and this one is one of them even if he was guilty okay even if he was guilty this happened when he was under 25 i think was 19 years old when he was accused wrongfully accused mind you of a heinous crime that uh even the family says no it wasn't him and uh I believe, and I'll be corrected if, if, if I'm wrong, because I know Melissa knows this case inside and out. And, um, and the brain is not formed until 25 years old. And sometimes people grow up very differently than other people. And then there's, you know, different thoughts of process. Is somebody rehabilitatable? Well, just Julius Jones is innocent. Okay, so he's innocent. So all that is moot, but... Then again, when it comes to the Pardon and Parole Board, it's not moot because they get to determine if somebody can thrive, if they, ha- if they are worthy of it, if they are deserving of it. Melissa Hurry, uh, I appreciate you uh, being on with us again tonight. I feel bad that Jimmy uh, Lawson can't come on, but I guess we got to take the licks as, as they come our way just because I know he's a super busy guy with lots of business. So how are you tonight? Yeah. I'm doing well, Tanya. Thank you. Um, yeah, I spoke with uh, Jimmy, and uh, next Sunday looks like a go for him. So he said um, that he will definitely be with us next Sunday. And yes, he is a very busy man. So 
things come yeah. up for him, and I guess it's to be expected with um, everything that he has going on. So, but he'll be sun- next Sunday. He said is is good for him. So we okay. should hear from him next Sunday. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll be happy when he can come on. That's that's for sure. And you know, Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to, you know, like I said, talking about his insights on you know what led him to you know throwing his hat in and um and his his yeah. friendship Jimmy is a tremendous inspiration and I think anybody that doesn't know him that may be listening will appreciate the tremendous energy that he brings cuz he's really a presence and I respect what um he's doing and what he's already done very much so it'll be it'll be a treat for people to hear from him that don't already know all this and I totally respect what you've already done and what you're doing. As as a matter of fact, if uh, most most people, ha- um, you know, who listen to the show, obviously have heard you and you've introduced yourself before. But can you please introduce yourself again for those who have not uh, had the pleasure of meeting you? Sure. Um, my name is Melissa Hurry, and I have been in the field of law and mix that with a little bit of state government for uh, 23 years. I I was in um, criminal law and family law for 17 years at a private law firm, and then I was fortunate enough to gain employment with the state of Connecticut at the Office of State Ethics, so I've been there for going on six years now. And so I get to see a lot of what goes on in in state government, and that's a blessing because um, it's really an eye-opening experience. It's something that people should know. Local politics is very important, and I didn't even realize the importance of that until I um, became employed in state government. So I try to educate people on that, the importance of your legislators, your representatives, your senators, your governor. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Sometimes it's, you know, it's easy to look at the big picture and, oh, well, this has got to change, and that's got to change, but... Uh, you also have to not forget who is it that can, um, you know, trickle up as well as what can trickle down. Uh, and, and And how do you affect change? You know, and sometimes I wonder, Melissa, mm-hmm. you, you know, just so often it seems as though our Constitution, and we both really feel so strongly you know, towards the the, the benefit of of our constitution and constitutional law, um, you, you know, just what's left up to interpretation and has been so twisted by um, by politicians, not genuine lawmakers, but pol- politicians. Because a genuine lawmaker or a genuine genuine statesman or, or stateswoman. Uh, somebody who genuinely works for the people um, won't twist things around to suit political gain or favor. And we find that happening so much on, you know, on, on, on all sides of, of, of things. And, and, you know, and as we talked about this last time we were talking about Julius was, you, you know, what is, uh, you know, uh, cruel and unusual punishment and, and and the fact that that you know he was recommended for parole or for commutation, yep. forgive commutation, me. And, mm-hmm. and and yet and yet the state 
the Attorney General's office chooses to still, you know, try to slip in, and they did, an execution date. And what is it? What are, what do they think? Isn't isn't that cruel and unusual punishment? Couldn't they just put a hold on that? Gee, Governor Stitt, are you going to sign this paper or or not? You know, if he doesn't sign it, okay, then they set an execution date. But what would make them think that Governor Stitt would not sign? You know, the the recommendations uh, of the parole board that were very strong in favor of Julius Jones. What, what well, do you think I think it is? I don't I don't know why they. Well, I mean, according to them, it's, it's procedure, and they're following procedure in the scheduling of these execution dates. And keep in mind, there's other individuals um, besides Julius Jones as well who have received execution dates. And I have a problem with the issuance of those execution dates. Period, because we still have an Eighth Amendment issue that's very much alive. Um, there was a judgment through the federal district court um, that the, a judge, a district judge, indicated that the issue of the protocol that Oklahoma follows for execution, there's an issue of whether or not that is a violation of the Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual clause. Right. So I think I feel, and as long that as long as that judgment is is there and there is a trial pending, that they shouldn't be scheduling any execution dates. And I feel that those seven inmates who were not covered under that judgment, I feel that is wrong because I don't feel like you can take somebody's Eighth Amendment issue away for any, Eighth Amendment protection, I'm sorry, away for, for any reason. And I don't know, we've ta- I know we've talked about this, but maybe, you know, if, if people weren't listening in, there's an right. issue of seven individuals who Please. did not pick yeah, an I'll alternative say. method of execution because this lawsuit was filed on behalf of all death row inmates in Oklahoma, and there was um, a question that was asked of all the inmates on what type of alternative method they would pick as a way to be executed. So you're asking somebody how they would like to be murdered by the state, basically. And I think that in and of itself is cool and unusual. We've talked about that. But I'm not quite sure how a federal court doesn't cover those people in a say of executions while this Eighth Amendment issue is pending. It's definitely an issue for the circuit court, I believe, if not the Supreme Court. I'm not an expert on constitutional law, but the indications are there. You're talking about Eighth Amendment rights. So with that being said, I'm not sure why they went ahead and scheduled execution dates, but they have. And Julius Jones' execution date is scheduled for November 18th. Jeez, just just seeing that when when that happened because he is the only one who has been um, offered, you know, been uh, uh, recommended for commutation, uh, which is absolutely unprecedented. Period. It's never happened before. Correct. Uh, No, it's never happened before. Not for not for a death row inmate. It has not. This is absolutely amazing. And yet they still found it within themselves to to um, to follow what their so-called protocol when there was no protocol for this kind of a matter. Isn't that interesting if you think about that? But I 100% agree with you that that you know is they kind of like uh, what they they caught people they caught these others off guard 
and you know, just for those that are uh, that don't know, but the Eighth Amendment, the United States Constitution says excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. Okay, and so there's there's a lot of debate about um, about this. You know, the cruel and unusual punishments clause that prohibits barbaric methods of punishment. Well, knowing what we know about, uh, you know, set aside whether you believe in uh, the death penalty or not, okay? Set that aside, right, you know, for the listeners. But we know what happened when there was certain cocktails uh, given in in Oklahoma that uh, absolutely tortured, that tortured uh, a, a man that uh, for a, a length of period of time that was not supposed to happen. And so that's why these cocktails, these concoctions of these injections um, were stopped. So when Oklahoma said to those on death row, all right, well, how do you want to be taken out? And these others that are on death row with Julius Jones chose not to write anything. I just wonder, did it say uh, in, on that paperwork, if you do not choose anything that we will decide for you or, or that you will automatically default to something? You know, I would love to see a, a copy of that. But the fact that, you know, we know why these were stopped. And and if that is not barbaric to potentially choose to continue with that kind of a death sentence, again, set aside whether you believe in a death sentence or not, then that's barbaric. That's cruel and unusual. And then and, and think about this. There are people that come to see their loved ones be put to death because that way they're there for every last second as well as you know the the victims now in 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 case of julius jones isn't it that the victim's family says he's not guilty or correct me if i'm wrong there no no they they don't um they don't take that position the the howell family does not take the position that Julius is not guilty. There was one um, person okay. who I believe was, who, well, I know was the um, girlfriend of Paul Howell at the time who came forward and said that she had serious questions about um, okay. whether or not Julius was guilty. But the other, the, the rest of the family, at least the ones who spoke at the commutation hearing, do take the position that, that they believe Julius is guilty. Okay. But what did happen was that the only eyewitness to the crime, um, the victim's sister, the, her description of the shooter did not fit Julius's description at all. In fact, it fit the description of his co-defendant. So that's the issue there. Mm-hmm. And thank you for straightening me out on that because, as you know, there is a lot of cases and so many of them that the wrongful convictions Actually, mm-hmm. the victims are, are do say no, it wasn't them. I mean, I remember there was this one case, Melissa, where um, there was a judge over in 
in Tulsa District. His name is Judge Miller, Anthony Miller. I'm very familiar with him. And he was pulled out of um, his punishment of being uh, put put on uh, restraining protective orders to go on this one case that was about, you know, a a murder that took place. And, And... and this person was charged, and and yet both the mother of the person who was murdered and the mother of her son who was being charged hugged each other and wept in each other's arms after this took place because they both knew this was unjust. They knew that he wasn't the one who did it, you know, and, and this happens. Just so often, just so often, and and why is it that these cases that have so many different uh, caveats to it, and there's new DNA, and there's new witnesses, what's the problem with retrying when it's the difference between saving somebody's life or not, or or saving somebody's life that has been sentenced to life in prison or not. These are real human beings. These are real people. When they're innocent and they're not being given the opportunity to prove it with new information that's come forward, now that is barbaric. It is. And there's, you know, I feel there are um, a number of legislators who are starting to see this, who are starting to see the potential for executing innocent people. And and it's not a bipartisan thing. Um, There are conservative legislators who are are taking that position. There are people who say, um, legislators included, that, hey, I agree with the death penalty, but I don't agree with us executing innocent people. So they're beginning to question the process. They're beginning to question these cases, as they should, because we know that these cases exist. This is what I am doing my thesis on at the moment. I'm doing a comparison of all wrongful conviction cases as compared to wrongful conviction death sentences to see if there are any components that contribute to a wrongful death sentence more so than in any other wrongful conviction cases. And so Mm -hmm. the results that I'm finding tell me that, yes, there are. There are two components that contribute to both at higher rates than anything else but the rates are even higher in death penalty cases than they are in all other wrongful convictions, and that's perjured or informant testimony and official misconduct. Right. That's like, that's huge. There's, and, and why have a perjury charge if you don't use it? That's what, that's what I want to know. Why is it that I, I, would, I, I could see so many attorneys be slapped with perjury charges, but I can't see them slapped with perjury charges because they're not being held to that, that bar that they're supposed to have. You know, that's a, a crime. So if you're, if you're working on discrediting somebody, right, you can discredit mm-hmm. a witness. You can di- so attorney has perjured themselves, and they know that, that's discrediting them them as an attorney, and why aren't they being punished 
it is very few and far between. I, I have a feeling that so many are only punished when they're when they are so few actually, um, just to make a statement or because they're not part of the good old boys club. Mm-hmm. You, you know, uh, I've seen so many perjured statements that have turned lives around in a, in a bad way. The the judges ignore or or all of a sudden it disappears you know, that they were supposed to be heard in court. It's just absolutely nuts. Why did they get away with it? How can they get away with it? Because they can, because they do. Where they can and where they do. That's what happens. It's like a very dangerous status quo. And when you look at these cases, there's a very distinct pattern because not only can you see that they include um, perjured or informant testimony and official misconduct, but there's another important component that goes along with that. So if you look at data from the National Registry of Exonerations, which is like my Bible these days, um, you will see that they record every exoneration that's occurred from 1989 to the present. And not only do they include the people who have been exonerated, their names, um, there's a lot of demographics that they include, uh, race, gender, uh, year they were convicted, how old they were when they were convicted, the sentence they Received, And not only that, it covers, um, I believe it's seven different factors that play into wrongful conviction. So you can see which factors played a role in each of those exonerations. So when you look at the data and you see that there's perjured testimony and there's official misconduct, in a majority of the cases, and when I say majority, um, it's over uh, three quarters, well over three quarters of the cases, include withholding of exculpatory information, information okay, that is... Okay, explain to our listeners what exculpatory mm-hmm. means for those that don't remember or don't know. Information that if it were provided to the defense and presented to the jury could have made a distinct difference in the outcome of the case. And so, so this, it, this means even if the, even if the defense attorney, even if the, the, the public defender or your defense attorney were not aware of it, it is still the law that this yes. is to be turned over to the defense out of fairness for the, def- the, de- the defendant because the defendant has the right to, you know, to meet their accuser and to, de- and to defend themselves. And so, you know, let's say they saw the smoking gun, they did, they did thumbprints on it and it belongs to somebody else, okay? Well, if that defendant was not provided that information, then that's exculpatory evidence that is not being provided, mm-hmm. and that's against the law. Now, why is you, it that uh, that a prosecutor wouldn't turn that over? Well, you want to know why sometimes? these are, We're only talking about the bad prosecutors, not the good ones, okay, because their good ones mm-hmm. would do that, all right? But the bad prosecutor wouldn't turn that over because they already have it in the bag. They've already nailed somebody that's going to take the hit for it, whether they're guilty or not, because they have no clue who these other thumbprints belong to. They know it doesn't belong to the defendant, mm-hmm. but, it, but it makes them look bad because we've got a murderer out on the streets and, and the prosecutor's office and the police, they haven't been able to track him down. So this is how... 
the this is one of the reasons why these errors, not errors, these uh, the malfeasance occurs. Well, that is part of it. It 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 is part of it. But you know what? It's not always smoke and gun evidence. You know what else is part of withholding exculpatory information? It's withholding um, when an informant is given a reason to testify against somebody. So what type of benefit is this informant getting for receiving for their testimony? That is withholding of exculpatory information. And I have a feeling, and I'm going to be doing analysis, that that is the most common factor when you talk about withholding of exculpatory information because it would be essential for a jury to know that, hey, this is a career informant, a career criminal who's receiving a much lesser sentence for whatever other crime he's, he's committed in or exchange for his testimony. Or being taken off of death row. So his life yes, is being scared if he's willing to lie. Um, <laughs> right? Exactly. So it is a lot of times it is avoiding a death sentence. Other times it's not even, it's not even a death sentence. So um, we can give a good example of this because in Julius Jones's case, one of the informants was Kermit Lottie, who was running a chop shop. And if anybody doesn't know what a chop shop is, that's where when vehicles get stolen, they get taken to a shop, they, they either get moved or chops. That's the reason they call it a chop shop. So that, he's, he's running a chop shop. And now Kermit Lottie, interestingly enough, was involved in the wrongful conviction of two other inmates who were on death row for some years, Nancy Douglas and Paris Powell. So in those two cases, those two gentlemen were exonerated. And it was found that the DA in their case um, had committed misconduct. And the misconduct came in the form of withholding exculpatory information. And that exculpatory information involved Kermit Lottie. Okay. And so now we know that the the Oklahoma – that that the the DA right now is uh, Oklahoma City DA is David Prater, but yet yes. Prater was not the one who was the district a- attorney, the prosecutor no, at no, the no. at the time that Julius was found guilty. Um, yes, no, he wasn't. But that being said, he's he, you know David Prater is a notorious name for corruption in in Oklahoma absolutely notorious you know and there are so many dirty cases where he is involved that yes uh, i've seen i've seen his name come up in in many different potential um scandals which haven't been labeled as such but my my take on that is how many times does one's name come up in scandal before you start to think to yourself well maybe there's something going on there and i'm certainly not making accusations and just um, pointing out that there have been a few different instances where it would pose questions, let's just say that, ethical ethical questions. Oh, oh, oh yeah. I mean, we're talking about uh, the whole squaw case. We're talking about, mm-hmm. um, oh, I, I don't have them in front of me right now. But uh, there's, you know, and God forbid, you know, you've got, you've got the hanging, hanging Henderson judge, and now Henderson is gone. Um, he had to quickly resign with his scandals. Uh, it's amazing how 
people quickly resigned. So, you know, are they able to still get their pensions? It just it makes one wonder, you know, the Attorney General Mike Hunter, who, to, if you ask me, the one good thing that he did was say that uh, Julius was allowed to have a hearing for a commutation. That's the one good thing that he did. Um, everything else was smoking was smoking mirrors. You know, Attorney General, ex-Attorney General uh, um, Mike Hunter, he should be investigated. I can't begin to tell you how many cases I know have gone before him and were booted out of his office, never given an investigation number when they sh- it should have been because it had already been, already been followed protocol. So this is where mm-hmm. we have an issue with our oversight committees. You know, they're, they're conflicts of interest. And um, it's just, it's amazing at some of the things that I see and I just ask myself, like, how isn't this something that was investigated before? But, I mean, I know how state government works here, but, you know, it's different from state to state, obviously. But, you know, I think that... mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that that kind of highlights the need for people to know who their local elected officials are and who their local legislators are and what they stand for and, and do they represent your interests and your needs and I think that's something that um, gets overlooked sometimes and I think people hopefully are starting to see the importance of the influence that legislators have on their everyday life and, and the laws that affect them the most. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, we're going to take a little bit of a break right now, and I think we have James Treat on with us. We're going to take a little bit of a break, and we're going to come back to this, Melissa, so stay with us. Okay. But we're sure. looking for updates. If James Treat is on with us, uh, I'd like him to press the number one because I do want to update. Um, I want to update our listeners who, you know, those who have been around for a long time know a little bit about Calvin, Oklahoma. So if James presses number one and he is on, just let us know. Otherwise, otherwise we can come back to him and certainly we can get caught up with him on Tuesday evening when we do um, our very political show about uh, the COVID and uh, and the corruption and and uh, the vaccines and whatnot. COVID is real. COVID is real, but and there are buts. Um, Marty, do we have him on live with us? Um, all right, she may have stepped away from the board. Okay, while we're taking this break, all right, I will. What I will do is I will update our listeners, you can let them on. Um, I will update our listeners on this case with George Skates. George Skates is out of Ohio. He is up against, it's already come and gone, the perfect storm, two wrongful convictions. Two wrongful convictions. The first one is regarding the death of Arthur Smith, where he was not even in town. It took three years for them to pin a murder on somebody that wasn't even in town 
and there are fingers pointing to just about everybody else other than Arthur Skate, who was nowhere near, uh, forgive me, uh, thank you, Marty. Okay, good, he's on. So we'll have him update uh, as soon as I'm done talking about uh, George, George Skates. So George Skates wasn't even around. Uh, I don't believe he ever had even been in the store right where this murder had actually taken place. So there's a man who was a manager of this store, and his name was Arthur Smith, and he had found out that um, some employees had been selling uh, merchandise and some some police uh, may have been involved and whatnot. And uh, so he let the cat out of the bag. And uh, long story short is Arthur Smith was murdered. There's no DNA whatsoever. There's no witnesses whatsoever other than somebody who is a career jailhouse snitch, jailhouse snitch, who actually was given tremendous privileges. They see the opportunities to just call some, to, to just snitch on somebody, whether it's true or not, just to come save the day for the prosecutors, and then their sentences are either let go or much lessened. And while they're still in prison, then they get special favors. Now, George Skates was uh, charged for the murder of Arthur Smith. Arthur Smith's family knows that George Skates had nothing to do with this. As a matter of fact, it was uh, George Skates' daughter-in-law and mother who were initially implicated, I believe, in this matter. And, uh, you know, I'm not talking strictly about this case or in this show, so all of my notes are not in front of me. But George was never, ever even a, a, a thought. He was never a person of interest. Nothing, nothing at all. But it just so happened that Jimmy Rogers, who was a jailhouse snitch, uh, happened to know of George Skate, and so he put out George's name as a, a scapegoat for him. So, uh, so here he is. He's in prison. Okay, absolutely against everything that you know that a guilty verdict should be rendered upon beyond a shadow of a doubt. Right? Right? Very different from civil law. Civil law is, you know reasonable belief, of reasonable belief. Criminal law, it's beyond a shadow of a doubt. How can you instruct your jurors to actually come up with a decision based on snitch testimony solely, and there's not any DNA, no, no real witnesses, nothing, nothing, nothing at all. So here he is in prison, for a, a life sentence, okay? I believe it was life with parole, okay? I believe. I'll have to double-check that. And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, has anybody ever heard of the Lucasville riot? Lucasville riot in Ohio was the longest-standing riot ever to happen in the United States. It still is, I believe, okay? The Lucasville riot was planned by 
a number of inmates, and one of them was not George Skate. He had no clue. He had no idea that this was happening, and he was sitting in his in his jail cell doing what he does, minds his own business, want, doesn't want any trouble, but he's also a peacekeeper. During this riot time, he was asked to be the spokesperson because it was he was highly regarded by uh, by the corrections officers as well as the prisoners because he minded his own business, didn't cause trouble, nothing like that, okay? He even helped save a couple of lives, including a corrections officer's life. Who has come forward and saying that? during this Lucasville riot. Well, lo and behold, snitch testimony, just so others can get away without being charged. George was asked, he was given the opportunity to say, who done it, who did this, and you'll be spared. He is not a snitch. He he held on to his dignity in the in the jail he said i didn't do it but i'm not telling who did he knew who did it but he wouldn't tell and then the ones who did do it blamed it on him and guess what he wound up getting death row he wound up getting death row when once again all that is being relied upon is jail house snitches they're walking free He's twice been convicted. Now, George is on death row. Now, I'm going to be interviewing him the first week of October. In the 30 years that he has been behind bars, he has never had an interview. I'm going to be interviewing him. I've gone through the approval process. He is not allowed to, and I'm not allowed to talk to him about this, and I won't. But we're not allowed to talk about his death sentence for the Lucasville riot. We're not allowed to talk about the Lucasville riot at all, which I won't do when I'm interviewing him. But I'm letting our listeners know right now that when I interview him, it will not be live, but you will hear this interview. It's going to last an hour. It will be pre-recorded. We're doing it on Teams. And... um, I just be aware that that will be coming out very soon. This man is innocent. You should look him up. Uh, his name is George, S-K-A-T-Z-E-S. He's an innocent man who is on death row. And during this interview, he won't be able to fight for his life because his death sentence is attached to the Lucasville murder. We'll have more on that. But I wanted to share that with you. That was very important. So now do we have James Treat on with us? I'm here. Hey, how are you, James? James I'm is doing gonna fine. Update us. James, can you tell a little bit about yourself, and then you're going to update us with Calvin, Oklahoma, and then we're going to have Melissa back on and and continue. Uh, but this is you you for any of our listeners who have who go back a couple of years, James Treat has been working so hard to bring this little town to justice, to, to justice when there has been constant criminals in, that, that are named as trustees, and most recently, there really weren't. 
So why don't you go ahead and do the update because I know that you can better than than I can. And uh, I, I appreciate you coming on tonight. If you could just talk a little bit about yourself and then just give a little bit of an update on um, on uh, Calvin, Oklahoma. By the way, I'll say one more thing. The, James, since he came forward as a whistleblower, and he, he spoke at the at, he spoke at a rally that we had in 2018 or 2019. I'm forgetting now. It's been far too long. Um, but he has, he spoke at a rally. He's he's taken some law school classes. He is a retired executive, uh, corporate executive uh, level C. Um, and he was nothing but abused and uh, accused and all kinds of crazy things that are attached many times to when you're willing to stand up and be a whistleblower. Now, sometimes you have other people who will rally behind you, but when you're in a small town and there's a couple hundred people there and most of them are just used to the corruption because they have something to benefit from it, Uh, or they just don't want to rock the boat because they will be penalized if they jump on board, Um, they're just complacent. Well, James has been abused beyond belief. His his vehicle was blown up. Uh, His trailer was set on fire the following year, 4th of July. I mean, he has been in life and death circumstances because of his willingness to come forward and want to make that town better place for not only himself, but for the senior citizens, but for the for the people, for those that are afraid to stand up. And he's got a lot of secret admirers, and he has a lot of admirers that aren't so secret anymore as well. James, go ahead. Well, you pretty well covered it. Um, if people want to get the full background on this Calvin saga, there is – uh, CalvinInfo.com, C-A-L-V-I-N-I-N-F-O.com. But the details of what I'm going to speak of tonight, because I'm going to kind of speak in generalities, can be found at Calvin Info on Facebook, a Facebook page called Calvin Info. And we're finally seeing movement after umpteen visits from by myself, to the Attorney General's office, to the Secretary of State's office, to the Tax State office, to having the state auditors come in and do an audit on this little town. We're, we're minus $5 million over 10 years. This little town hasn't filed their financials with the state of Oklahoma for 10 years. And yet nobody's been held accountable. Nobody's went to jail. Nobody's even looked into it. Well, in most recent times right here, and this is going on about four years' worth of learning more about the town of Calvin than most of the people that live here know. We had an election April 6th of this year. We had three incumbents run, and we had three new people run. Now, we are a statutory type of government where you have five trustees or five council members run the town. Well, back in 1981 the town created a trust which gave all the assets of Calvin, Oklahoma over to this trust. So that's why it is called, it's a dual uh, governing body of both the town council and the trustees over the town. So that actually puts more fiduciary responsibility on these five members 
than just being a regular old council member. Anyway, we had the election, and I was going scheduled for a trip, and I hung around trying to get wait for the results because there were three new people running, three old incumbents. Surely a new person can get elected. Well, as the results came back, the three incumbents got the most votes. It was an at-large race, meaning six people are on the ballot, and you could vote for any three, or you could vote for one or two, for that matter. There was one of the candidates who actually sued the election board because of, quote-unquote, alleged voter fraud. I didn't think there was that much there, which there really wasn't, because I had specifically myself looked at five individuals that I thought were going to vote that didn't end up voting, and they don't live in the town of Calvin. But this one particular person created enough doubt in district court that they referred this to the district attorney. They referred it to the uh, Secretary of State. They also referred it to the state election board. Well, lo and behold, it got referred to the governor's office. And the governor's office just last week came back and said, after petitioning the Oklahoma Supreme Court, basically made that election null and void for voter fraud and voter irregularities. So that threw threw a kink in this whole little thing because the old trustee board members, after the April 6th election, continued right on just like they were elected officials. They were not certified. Uh, We're talking about, what, May, June, July, and August? Mm -hmm. Conducting new business like there's nothing wrong. But a district judge would not certify the original election while it was being looked at up the ladder all the way to the governor's office, all the way to the Supreme Court, did not certify the electors. But they just kept right on going. This was brought up publicly that they were impersonating uh, public officials, which is a fraud, a felony. They just kept right on going. The town attorney skipped the first meeting in which they did this, but they kind of got their P's and Q's lined up, they thought. And so he reappeared, and so did the police chief. They were all informed of the criminality that was continuing. So the governor dropped the bomb last week that you've got to have a new election. Well, along with that, the timing just seemed to be right. I had been keeping up with a particular trustee that was known to be late almost at every meeting and had been missing a number of town hall meetings. And I went back and checked my notes because I'm in attendance. I knew what my notes said, so I went to town hall got the official town hall records, which so happened, ironically, this wouldn't have happened three years ago, their records matched my records for this particular council person or trustee, her attendance record. The own town ordinance reads that in four, any four consecutive months, including all normal and or special meetings, that a council person or trustee cannot miss more than one half of those. In this particular instance, between February, March, April, and May, 
There were five meetings, including a special meeting, of which this council person had missed three out of five. The ordinance further states that upon that happening, they cease to remain in office, meaning there's no discussing it at town hall. There's no voting. There's no At the point, 10 minutes after 7, on the third meeting that person missed, she was not a trustee or council member anymore. And they have since held three separate council meetings, one special council meeting in which this person, since June, has voted in and participated in, which are all felonies because she's impersonating a public officer. That was dropped uh, last week in, on Facebook. I still have to write a formal letter I don't have to, but I will, to the town attorney because the only way the town attorney looks at anything is if it's in writing and he can't deny that you told him and said that. So in essence, what we have in this little small town right now is we have one certified trustee, which is amazing because that's the corruption base in the town is the board of trustees. Nobody can really vote. So that one certified trustee could be just, you know, should be the decision maker, but you can't really have that because it has to go up for vote. So there's nothing that's really valid. All that they can do is pay bills to keep town hall open. And that's all they should have been able to do from April 6th. But they continue. So the million-dollar question is, what are they going to do now? What needs to be so? What needs to be unwound? Uh, all the well, there was many, many illegitimate meetings before this, but specifically June, July, and August meetings. Any business conducted absolutely has to be redone and thrown out, which involves their budget that they submitted, their raises that they gave themselves, etc. <laughs> so they got to get back the money, I wonder. And I'm pretty, I'm fairly certain those raises have happened in that time frame. But irrespective, they shouldn't have been able to do those since April to begin with. Mm-hmm. But the biggest point of this is, is this little bitty town that's been hiding down here in the darkness for 30 Huge years, 40 years, doing what they wanted to do and never being held accountable, the Oklahoma Supreme Court said, uh-uh, we're going to look at the fine letter of the law. And out of all my personal strifes and lawsuits and court appearances, the only thing I've ever triumphed in was in a filing by the old town attorney When I finally got one of the cases to the Oklahoma Supreme Court, he filed a brief, I filed a brief, and the Supreme Court struck down his brief, but his same brief was agreed to in district court. The corruption doesn't just involve this little town. It involves the county. It involves the county courts. It involves the DA, the district attorney. It even involved one of the state representatives until we voted him out a few years ago. Anyway, this might not sound like a lot to a lot of people, but this is a home run. It's, it's a it's, home it's huge. run. And now, did you and this, this, 
and this one remaining trustee, I need to go and get a little bit more information, not because I need it, because I need it to be clarified that the town hall doesn't have it, and then I will have criminal charges against the remaining trustee. That's wonderful. You have not given up. After everything that you have been through, you have not given up. And you know what? That town is going to be a better place because of you. Well, this all started not because of any – it started because I was one of the good old boys when I came back here relative to a good portion of the town. It wasn't until I stood up for the little guy to say, look, if if he's going to have a water deposit – I need to have a water deposit. So do you, and so right. do you, and so do you. They didn't like that. And the more you stand up for the people that were being treated differently, it started to open a few eyes that no one would raise their hand. But we have a couple more people raising their hand nowadays. And That's good. as an example of that, somebody other than myself videoed the last council meeting live on Facebook. Do you think they like that? Oh, no. There was over 400 people that saw that, and yet we only have 240 people in town. That's that's huge. Well, this is to our our listeners, and we'll, we'll, we'll just wrap this up over the next few minutes. But to our listeners, this is to the extent that things were so bad that James was on with us once a week, and we were exclusively talking about Calvin, Oklahoma, and Hughes County, and, you know, uh, a couple of things going on in Hughes County as well and with Tomka and whatnot, but you had uh, brought forward to me, James, um, and that thing turned around there. Things went well there after they were horrible there. But um, there was, there's been issues with the chief of police. Uh, the, the last couple of chiefs, chiefs of police um, not doing their job. But uh, but they decided, because it was on Tuesday night, that you were coming on. And so, uh, so there was uh, like this little group, a private group that was set up, which wound up not being so private because there were other people that, you know, were sharing, uh, that, that they decided to have what they called was a, "Quote unquote," a parade uh, past uh, James Building with cars honking and whatnot, trying to actually disrupt every time that uh, that he was going to come on air, and we were going to talk about the little town of Calvin, Oklahoma. Do you want to take that a little bit further before we wrap that up? Well, we have the actual messages, the actual taxes that were on Messenger and all that that said they were going to teach me or they were going to teach us a lesson. In other words, they were going to try to silence us again from speaking the truth, just like they tried Mm -hmm. to silence me by burning my truck, just like they tried to silence me by writing me 50, 60 citations in a month trying to financially Mm -hmm. do whatever they thought. In other words, they're mob mentality, this little town mentality of we got to live here and we don't care if our neighbors are drug dealer or not. We all got to We don't care if there's, you know, breaking the law here. Or they got a license. 
we got to stand behind one another, just like a group of outlaws, literally. Right. Literally, right. it was that mob mentality. But yeah. here's where I'd like to and credit. And that's what it's like in the mainstream media these days, isn't it? Oh, boy. All right. Well, it, we, but we here's what I'd like to credit that a lot of the success to is Tanya, Marty, getting – my audience on Facebook page isn't to the people around here. It's to the one or two government agencies that might be checking in on it here or there. Or it's a timeline to say, you don't believe me, go look. Go look there. There's the documents. There's the uh, scenario. There's the the narrative. Go look. But it's because of what Tanya is doing tonight in terms of the prisons and the other subject matters that have been on here and Marty's willingness to let it be put out there publicly. You've got to shine a light on and evil. Stephen Burke. You, and Stephen Burke. And Stephen. You've got to shine a light on evil. You've got to shine a, a light on corruption. Because they can't operate in the light. They can only operate in the dark and under the covers and under the secret of night. They can't operate in the day or in the light. So that's why this is so important. It's so important. Well, I'm just so glad to hear that things are going as well as they are after, you know, the light is shining. And that you have what you have been through is... It's horrendous, absolutely horrendous how you have had, you've been targeted for, for so long. And um, I know things seem to, to, to let up, but the corruption still continued. Um, but now, you know, more people are seeing the light and they're deciding that it's better off to an end. And, uh, and that's thanks to you. So we'll, we'll, you know, certainly hear more from you, and certainly you and Stephen both will be on, on on Tuesday night where we discuss what we've been discussing Tuesday night. And um, and I really appreciate you coming on and updating us. It's, that's, it's, it's, it's good news, and keep us posted, please. All right. I have one last comment. I sure. generally won't step out and speak about anything that I don't already have the answer to or I don't have – document proof, video, written proof, or anything like that. But I know of a situation right now as we speak that I can't even touch or go into, but it's, it's, it's major. And I, hopefully it will be something we can report on very, very soon, but it will be a very big domino if it falls. And this is in Calvin, which is in Hughes County, Oklahoma. Correct. Is this specific to Calvin? Okay. It's it's oh. it's huge. If it if you'll have to talk to me off the record. <laughs> yep. Like I said, as okay. we speak. Okay. And and you already know one of you already know the indiv- individual that that we're, that I'm not. I bet I about. do. I <laughs> bet I do. Okay. Well, that's good news, too, then. We're looking forward to hearing that uh, update. And keep up the good work. Watch your back, please. And uh, thank you for everything that you're doing. Uh, Oh, you're welcome. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, and Marty, tremendously. Thank you. Wow. Good evening. Good evening to you. Thank you. Melissa. Yes, I'm here. All right. Are you back? 
<laughs> I am back. I've been here. I've been doing some yeah. work while I was listening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty it's pretty amazing. You have these little, you know, tumbleweed towns like Calvin, Oklahoma, but every person's life in that town is just as important as anybody's life in Oklahoma City. You, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it's all it's all relative. It's all just so relative how this comes around, and yet, you know, you can't get Fox radio or, or the big radio stations or news stations, forgive me, over there, um, any of them, uh, and, unless something has already broken that's newsworthy. Like you can't get somebody over there to investigate it because it's not in their area. It's hours away. And and so it's it, it's 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 frustrating, you know. It's just it's hard to get mainstream involved, and this is where, you know, it's so important to have this alternative media that uh, mm-hmm. that you can count on, fair and balanced, and non-discriminatory, regardless of where you know the news is happening. Because everybody's life is just as important, whether you're from a little city, a little town, a big city, a little municipality. Uh, it's very, very important. But now, right now, we're talking. We'll jump back on to the Julius Jones case. Okay, so I think maybe just a, a update of where we stand right now um, for anybody who's listening that doesn't know. Uh, the Board of Pardon and Paroles recommended that uh, Julius's death sentence be commuted to a sentence of life with parole. And the board voted three to one in favor of a commutation. So we are waiting for Governor Stitt to um, give his opinion whether he recommends the, what the board has recommended, whether he accepts their recommendation. And um, so it's very essential to contact Governor Stitt, if you want to jump in and help out and try to save uh, the life of an innocent person on death row, uh, we also spoke at the beginning of the show how the Court of Criminal Appeals um, has scheduled an execution date for Julius of November 18th, despite the pending board recommendation of a commutation to life with parole. So time is of the essence. We are trying now, to contact the governor. Life with and parole. And let him know that. Mm-hmm. What would that mean in Julius's case where he would be considered for parole? He already would be considered for parole. The, the, the belief is that he would be considered, given the amount of time that he's already been in there, 22 years. I don't want to speak in a definite sense because there's a lot of questions surrounding that, but I believe that it's very likely that he would be eligible for parole with the time that he has already served. Again, that's 22 years. So if anybody wants to reach out and recommend to Governor Stitt that he accept the board's recommendation, that would be most helpful. There are links to do that very easily on I've got the the addresses here. Do you want me to give them? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I think that's essential for people that don't know how they can help to be able to to step up and help. So I'm going to say this 
twice, and and um, and you can also anybody can also always you know Google or DuckDuckGo it, but it's governor dot okay dot gov forward slash contact forward slash general dash info forward slash contact dash governor. Let me repeat that. HTTPS colon two forward slashes www.governor.ok.gov forward slash contact forward slash general dash info forward slash contact dash governor. So what that does is that allows you to contact Governor Stitt and you can actually write a message inside of that uh, little window that opens up. That would be the way to contact Governor Stitt about this case. There is also a link that um, goes directly to um, Governor Stitt, which is on Julia, the web page that provides all the information for Julius Jones's case, which is www.justice4forjulius.com. There is a link that you can send a direct email to Governor Stitt. Um, there is also a phone number, I believe, on the website for Governor Stitt, but if it's not, I mean, I, mean, I know it's there, but if anybody wants to take that down, that would be area code 405 521 Two three four two, and you can most Why certainly call. That? Oh sure, four zero five five two one two three four two, and we're just being very respectful. We're asking Governor Stitt if he will accept the recommendation that the Board of Pardon and Paroles recommended, which is their job, and we just feel confident that he will accept that recommendation and I I want to believe that he I do has too. faith I'm, in the board members that, that he appointed to be able to make these decisions and, and that's why they're there. And I, and I want to say too that I, w- I was just reading an article today about the commutation process here in Connecticut and I fully believe that Julius's case has brought so much national attention to this issue that I think other states are going to start reviewing their commutation process and procedure. And I know that that's a lot to hope for, but I I really truly think that is the case because this case has gained so much attention nationally that perhaps it does cause other states to revisit their procedures and their policies. Well, Melissa, this is is something that I've been talking to George Gates' family about is that it's unprecedented, and this could be setting a new precedent for other states to follow. And, you know, you you always ask. You absolutely always ask. Yeah, and this is an important process in in any state. We we abolished the death penalty here in Connecticut in 2012, so we don't have death sentences in people's lives at stake. But, you know, you still have people who have been in prison for a very long time who – 
I believe deserve second chances. There are people there that have been there for years that do deserve second chances. But when you have that and, and the rehabilitation inside of the prisons is very important, and this is something that needs to be improved everywhere. I don't care where I don't care where absolutely. it is. Otherwise, it's just prison for profit, and you know the recidivism rate is so high because there's a lack of rehabilitation, and and uh, there's so much money to be made off of putting people in prison. Yes, I definitely agree with that. I believe that. Um, there should there should there should definitely be more in the way of rehabilitative programs because isn't the goal supposed to be to reduce recidivism rates? We can't do that if we don't follow some sort of best practices as to how we accomplish that. And there are very specific components that go into best practices when you're talking about lowering recidivism rates. And in certain states, maybe provide more resources for incarcerated individuals than others and I fully believe that it definitely plays a role into how many states are utilized in private prisons and the for-profit private prison industry is huge. It's huge. Yep. It, it, it is huge and and you know even if it's not for-profit you know I, I, I still believe that the prisons are making money, that the ones that are coming from areas that are corrupt, that have corruption, that lend a hand in putting people in prison wrongfully wrongfully convicted or making sure people stay in, in prison. And that's because, look, we've, we've gone through, what, it's going on two years of, you know, pretty much mostly lockdowns. Uh, or no visitors in prisons because of this COVID, right? And yet, and yet you have people that are, uh, you know, being charged with having paraphernalia or, or whatever. So, you know, has that gone down at all? No. Well, gee whiz, where is it coming from? If it's not coming from visitors because they're not allowed to be there. We have a huge problem. Obviously, there's a profit there. You know, if there's if there's contraband, if there's cell phones that they're not supposed to have, we have a huge problem that are going on inside of the, the prison, the prisons, the working of the the prisons. I believe that there should be uh, body cams on every corrections officer, and if you're a good one, you shouldn't have a problem with it, right? You know, we need to have no dead space where no cameras are other than, you know, maybe in the toilet or whatever, you know, because there's a lot of shenanigans that are going on inside of the prisons and some abuse where it is, shenanigans where it is. But it's very important to realize that it's not a problem that is born strictly uh, by the inmate that is that is in there, the offender that's, that's in there. And remember how many wrongful convictions there are, but it's born mm-hmm. upon it, by the system when it's not working and where it's not working. And why is that, that it's not working? Because somebody's benefiting from it. And without regard to other people's lives, when is that 
okay. How did they get away with it, people ask? Roll their eyes. Are you sure it's not legal? Well, because they can. Once again, because no they can. What? You need accountability. You know, we've there's been a, a flurry of legislation as far as police accountability and transparency goes. So police are being held more accountable for the way they conduct themselves and in, in their actions and, and if they're doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. And, so and they're mostly police, good police out there, people. Well, yes, absolutely. Police, but we need to get rid of the ones that are not good. No, this is my point being is that if police yeah. are, are being held to a level of accountability and transparency, yeah. then we need to start looking at other players in the criminal justice system like the prosecutors, even judges, yeah. um, and even corrections officials because, like you said, there's a lot of things that go on in, in corrections that shouldn't be going on. And I feel right. like there are a lot of rights that are that are violated every day of, of prisoners that goes unaccounted for. And there are people right. as well, you know. So we can't just, like you said, um, everybody's life matters, whether or not they're out here or they're in there. They're still, it's still human life. That's right. That's right. You know, I mean... I, I know so if we that, want to hold you know, we, police accountable to certain standards, we have to hold the other players accountable to, to certain standards as well for anything to change. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the, the good police want police held accountable. The good corrections officers mm-hmm. want corrections officers held accountable. We know, I know, um, corrections officers that have quit because of all the corruption, and they're, they're still being threatened because they want, because um, their voices are have been silenced in, in case they come out and they talk about what is really going on. They're scared. I've had people on this show that have come on under different names. I've had people come on that have come under their real names as well that were willing to do that, that are continually being uh, harassed and threatened if, if they come out and they say something. Now, what is that saying? That's a huge, huge, huge problem. Yeah, that's the whole that's the whole culture that's that's been created, I, I believe, and it's unfortunate because people who want to do the right things are intimidated into not doing the right things and and not being able to come forward to to speak out about issues that are going on, and and you know it it happens. Similarly with prosecutors, too, because in some of these cases, you know, witnesses are bullied or intimidated or threatened, and that happens. You, you, you see that happen in a lot of these wrongful conviction cases as well, where there have been witnesses who have been, like you had mentioned earlier in the show, um, whether it be a co-defendant who is ex- has exposure to a death sentence and they're promised that you know, they won't receive a death sentence if, if they point the finger at somebody else or even just, you know, witnesses who they have something to lose and the prosecutors will threaten them with that. And, again, this isn't all prosecutors, but this happens. And we can say it's not all prosecutors, but, you know, there have been almost 3,000 cases of, of wrongful convictions that have happened since 1989 when the registry started recording those exonerations, which is, when somebody is able to actually prove their innocence 
So those cases, those three, near 3,000 cases, aren't even indicative of all the wrongful convictions that have occurred in this criminal justice system. That's a huge number, and it's an arguable okay. number. But that is inarguable. Uh, absolutely. That's, and one, one is too many. One is too many. Mistakes happen. Errors happen. But then when that happens, then that can be, if it's not too late, of course, if somebody hasn't already been sent to death row, then it can be corrected. Then it can be corrected. How many of these cases that you know of, Melissa, mm-hmm. has it been when a prosecutor or an investigator has come forward and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I just found this out, or wait a minute, I just found that out. Oh, there was a mistake. I know of none. How about you? Well, I can't speak. There's been a lot of exonerations, so I don't know that in every one of those cases it hasn't been the instance that a, a prosecutor has come forward and, and, and said, you know, that, that it hasn't occurred. I don't know that it hasn't occurred. I'm sure it has occurred in some cases, and or, or DA will come forward because we have um, – conviction integrity units around the country that are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing and DAs will come forward and say well you know we re- need to revisit this case because evidence says this, this might have been a wrongful conviction doesn't happen everywhere but it does happen but right. what you have sometimes is even that met with resistance because if you look at the state of Missouri their attorney general has stopped a couple of instances where their conviction integrity unit said we really should revisit this case and the attorney general there has actually interjected and and filed against revisiting those cases so appealing the conviction integrity unit and the DA's decision to revisit those cases so you have that issue and why would they do that if they if there is believed to be you know something that went wrong with the case why would they argue that they, would, they should want to say, wow, well, we don't want to do this to an innocent man or woman. Yeah, so this is another issue that surfaces itself now is that a conviction integrity unit should be left to do the job that they are intended to do, and that's review cases where there have been questionable guilty verdicts. And if they feel if that unit, along with the DA or the prosecutor, whoever is in, involved with operating that unit, feels that a case should be reviewed, then that case should be reviewed the Attorney General should not be able to step in and stop that because the, right. this, this is a step in even having prosecutors and DAs admit that a case needs to be reviewed. Right. Because I can point right. you to other cases where um, DAs have promised to review cases and, and say they need to be reviewed, but then when it comes down to it, they're not actually sincere in their promises and they haven't reviewed those cases. There's a case out of New York that I try to be an advocate for where that very instance has happened. And, and it, so it's not just Oklahoma, my point right. being, because, you know, in this particular case, there was a DA who was involved in three other cases of misconduct where three separate individuals did over 25 years. This is Queens, New York. And so oh, the, the same DA who was involved in those three cases was involved in another case, the case of Chanel Lewis. And this this DA, Melinda Katz, is is of the opinion that Chanel Lewis's case doesn't need to be revisited, even though the same DA who was found to have committed misconduct and three other wrongful convictions was the same DA that had him had oh. Chanel convicted. Oh, and it took two trials. The first trial, 
was split 7-5. The jury was split 7-5. So the second trial, he was actually convicted. And that's not a case that shouldn't be reviewed. Just the fact that this DA was involved in three other cases of misconduct to me is a strong indicator that this case should be reviewed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it right. happens. In, it, was, it just reminds me of the, you know, when you, somebody goes to the party and parole board automatically, you know, the very first hearing is typically when the prosecutor, whether they were the prosecutor on the case when this person was prosecuted, uh, uh, found guilty or not, when they were found guilty, actually, otherwise this wouldn't be coming up in front of the pardon parole board, that, that it's, it's their job to, admit, to immediately and automatically um, opine against parole, just like uh, opine against the commutation. They followed suit with that as well. And, you know, and, and, and so Why? Well, as I said before, I think that, and I'm hopeful, that Julius's case will warrant a review of states' commutation practices and policies and and um, make them revisit what they've been doing all these years. Um, there was an article I read today about my state, Connecticut, and um, one specific individual who was given a 75-year sentence who's done um, three decades in prison and um, is very ill now from um, different health difficulties mixed in with COVID and everything else that's going on. So um, this is a case that's brought um, commutation as an issue in Connecticut as well. So Right, like a mercy. I, yes, yes. And um, there, there are actually some loopholes in that too um, in, a, in granting parole to someone in that situation who has those serious health issues. So there, there are some questions that are being addressed by the Connecticut Pardon and Parole Board surrounding those types of issues too. So there, there's a lot of reform that needs to be done. It's not exclusive to Oklahoma. It's a nationwide problem. It, it, it just becomes too much like clockwork where people are treated as numbers in many cases, not all, instead of human beings. And, you know, just think about it. Like sometimes when we're driving home from work, right, you know, you get back and it's like, geez, I'm back here already? I don't even remember getting back here. You know, you're kind of doing things by osmosis in a sense, you you know, just through muscle memory. And, you know, and this can happen to the best of people, and that's a really bad thing when that happens. I think we need to start recognizing the fact that a lot of these people were sentenced to these extremely long sentences when they were very young ages. And we know that there's been a lot of research and scientific research and evidence that proves that cognitive ability is an issue. So somebody who commits a crime when they're 18 or 19 years old and has served 20 or 30 years in prison could very well be rehabilitated now haven't been in prison all that time, we know that the that the abilities of, of someone that at that young an age are not um quite there and you know, some most studies agree that that doesn't happen until the age of twenty five, some of them older than that. So their their ability to make decisions 
at that age are, is very much diminished, which diminishes culpability. You have to look at it that way. Right, right. Well, we're about ready to wind up the show right now, and um, we'll be back on with you again um, on next Sunday and with Jimmy Lawson, okay? Yes. So we'll catch up to that. All right. So I want to thank you very, very much for for coming on and shedding some additional life and uh, light and life uh, onto this issue with Julius Jones and the other victims of this of the death penalty date that has been set uh, that is absolutely barbaric. So we'll have you back on with Jimmy next Sunday. So we hope all our listeners will tune back in for that. I hope all our listeners will also tune in this coming Tuesday, except it's going to be at 8.30 Central Time. 8.30 Central Time, where you're going to hear James Treat and Stephen Burke. And we are going to talk about more of this nonsense with COVID and the vaccines and the control. Um, there's all kinds of proof and truth to um, other therapeutics that will actually keep you alive rather than harm you. So we're going to talk about that. I want to thank my mother for tuning in again, and I want to thank you listeners for tuning in and taking notice. And please do consider seriously reaching out to Governor Stitt. Please consider reaching out to Governor Stitt. Uh, he is on top of things. We know he was a little busy with Cal- with Calvin, Oklahoma this past week, but uh, let's get him right on top of uh, signing off on this commutation for Julius Jones and save this man's life. I'm Tanya Hathaway with Tanya Talks, where your voice is heard and your stories told on Marty Oakley's TS Radio Network and Stephen Burke's 89.9 KLRB-FM Lighthouse Christian Radio. God bless and good night. <laughs>